Hey there, this is Brian Zond. We'll get to the sermon in just a moment, but I want to let you know I have a new book out, The Unvarnished Jesus, A Lenten Journey. It is a devotional for the season of Lent. takes the reader from Ash Wednesday, which is February 26th this year, all the way right up to Easter Sunday. So it's a great way to journey with Jesus through Lent, learn how to see Jesus beyond the varnish of the assumptions that we often make. Uh, you can get this book on Amazon, so go ahead and order it now so you'll be ready for two or three pages per day of Lenten devotions, The Unvarnished Jesus, available now at Amazon.com. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain. And entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. All right, well, we're about to embark upon the Lenten journey. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, begins the Lent. We have one, two, three, four services for Ash Wednesday. I really, really encourage you to make one of them. The first one is at 7 a.m., then there's one at noon, and then there's one at 5.30 p.m., there's one at 7. Pick one. 7 a.m., noon, 5.30, 7 p.m. Pick one of them. There'll be about 40 minutes long. Uh, it'll be a time... Is that... Is that? It'll be a time of uh, preparing us to go on that Lenten journey. We'll have the imposition of the ashes. We'll have times of prayer. We'll be able to together uh, draw near and begin this process of the journey toward Easter. That takes us 40 days plus the Sundays. So it's 46 days. But we think of it as 40 days of some kind of fasting. But there are six feast days Throughout that, because every Sunday is a feast day, so it's 46 days from Ash Wednesday that will lead us to Easter. You know, the Christian calendar is a gift to help us in our spiritual formation. By the calendar, we are retelling and reliving the story of Jesus. And what Lent does, Lent just means, you know, springtime. It's an old English word for spring. It happens in the springtime. But what it does is it takes us in the story of Jesus from the second half of Jesus' ministry all the way to his crucifixion. And then we're ready for the celebration of his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So we are preparing for Easter for 46 days uh, so that we might be prepared to fully enter into the newness of resurrection life in Jesus Christ. How many of you are ready for something new in your life? Something that comes from the power of Jesus to be released in your life. Well, amen. Well, we're going we're gonna to spend the next 46 days, starting on Wednesday, preparing for that newness to arrive. That's what Lent is about. I've, I've, got, a, I've got a new book that is designed to help you do that. The Unvarnished Jesus, A Lenten Journey. It's 46 Readings take you about, I don't know, there's a scripture portion to read and then there's a meditation that's, I don't know, take you two or three minutes. It's not, a, it's not a lot each day, but I think just the discipline of every day, here's the scripture reading, 
And here's a meditation, and then it concludes with a prayer that you can pray. So I encourage you to be doing that. And what we're doing is we're walking with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, and it is a journey to the center of salvation. Jesus took his 12 disciples on a journey where he traveled from Galilee north into the region, the district of Caesarea Philippi. It's it's at the base of Mount Hermon. And Jesus took his 12 disciples from Galilee north to the district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was founded as a Roman city in the year 3 BC by Philip the Tetrarch, who was the son of King Herod. And when we say Caesarea Philippi, what what that really means is Philip's Caesar city. So it's there in the land of Israel, and Philip, the son of King Herod, Philip the Tetrarch, is founding a Roman city dedicated to Caesar Augustus. And in that city, there was a, a marble statue of Caesar Augustus, which was part of the cult of the emperor that people would pray to and worship. It was also the site of a cave that was dedicated to the Greek god Pan, who is the, who is the, who is the god of, it's kind of hard to, the god of wildness, but also a, a god of, uh, that is associated with aspects of fear. It's where we get the word panic. Panic comes from the Greek god Pan. And there was a shrine to the, let's say it this way, there was a shrine to panic. And that shrine was in a cave, I've seen this cave, and the cave was known as the gates of Hades, the gates of death, the gates of hell. And so this is where this episode takes place. Jesus, the scriptures tell us that Jesus took them to the region, not into the city because Jesus never entered Gentile cities. But he went to the region of Philip's Caesar city where there was the cult of emperor worship and where there was the gates of death, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, and the worship of the Greek god of pan or panic. In other words, Caesarea Philippi really does represent the idolatry of emperor worship and the fear of death, which really is Satan's kingdom. So we can just say it this way. Jesus goes into the region where Satan's kingdom was very pronounced. And he's got a reason for all of this. And when they finally get there, he asks his disciples a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is this mysterious figure that you see in the book of Daniel. Who, it is prophesied, will be given dominion over all of the nations which is what caesar is trying to do by the way caesar is the one who claims that he has dominion over all of the nations but there's a prophecy in daniel that this mysterious son of man will be given authority over all of the nations and jesus asks his disciples who do people say that the son of man is and they say well some say he's john the baptist who had just recently been executed by King Herod. Others say that he's Elijah, that Elijah is going to return and come. 
that this is the Son of Man. Some say that it's Jeremiah, the, the prophet who foretold and the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Others say he's just one of the prophets. Oh, okay. And then Jesus asked this question. But who do you say that I am? So, so Jesus is identifying as the Son of Man. It's his favorite term for self-designation. Who does Jesus say is the Son of Man? And Jesus says, now who do you say I am? And Peter is the one that spoke up first. He wasn't known as Peter at this point. He's known as Simon. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the king. You are the chosen one. You are the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure that out on your own. But my Father in heaven has revealed to you who I am. That's how you know that. And I'm going to start calling you a new name. I'm going to call you Petros. Peter. Rock. Rocky. I'm going to call you Rocky. I'm going to call you Rocky. And on this rock, I'm going to call you Petros and on this Petra, I'm going to call you Rocky. And on this rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my church. It's the first time that Jesus ever mentions the church. First time. Why is Jesus mentioning the church? Why, why does he go all the way up to Caesarea Philippi? Why does he go to Philip's Caesar city where they worship the emperor and they're filled with panic and they're filled with the fear of death? Why does Jesus go? Because the answer to All of that is the church. So Jesus goes to the borders of the kingdom of Satan to announce that what he's going to do is he's going to build his ecclesia. It means called out, called out. The idea is that you're called out of your private house into a public gathering. That's what the word means. But this is a very unique public gathering. We're we're called out of our individual private lives to be gathered together around the confession that Peter has made that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And where people leave their individual private lives and come together around the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is the church. And Jesus said, and you know what? The gates of Hades, they're right there where the gates of Hades are. The gates of panic, the gates of the fear of death. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Oh, yeah, that's good. So, what is the alternative to Satan's kingdom? To the empires and societies that are built by and around the fear of death? Well, it's the church that Jesus is building. That's the alternative. There's the gates of Hades. And then there's the church that Jesus is building. Which is why. Um, that's what Jesus is doing. Right? Jesus is building it. That's, that's one of the reasons anyway. That I will always be a part of the church. Because I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. And that's what he's doing. I had a dream years ago. Where I, I met Jesus. In a dream. It's the only time I've had that. I met Jesus in a dream. 
And Jesus asked me one question. He said, Brian, what do you want? And I said, I want to be a part of what you're doing. Well, what Jesus is doing is building his church. And if we want to be a part of what he's doing, we have to be a part of his church. Because the church is Jesus' idea. As soon as people begin to confess, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, all right, let's build the church then. Let's, let's build the church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. And then, and then Jesus immediately, there in the region of Caesarea Philippi, representing the devil's kingdom, he announces that he's going to build his church. And then, for the first time, foretells his death. Let's pick that up. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, because he hasn't said this before. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great journeying with Jesus to Jerusalem. That's what Lent is about. That's what we're going to be doing. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the first time Jesus has said this to his disciples. He has called them in Galilee. They've left their businesses. They are following Jesus as he is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. They have come to believe that he is the Messiah. Peter has just confessed this. You are the Messiah. You're the chosen one. You're the anointed one. You're the king. You're the Christ. You're the one. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I'm going to build my church. You're going to be a part of it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on in heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And now we're going to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer greatly and be killed. This comes as a complete shock to them. This is not what they are expecting. They are, what are they expecting? They are expecting Messiah, whom they've just confessed is Jesus. That's why they've left everything to follow him. They're expecting Messiah to become a Jewish Caesar. Caesar rules the world in Rome. Everybody knows that. The world is under the rule of Rome. Everybody knows that. Caesar rules the world. What are they expecting? They're expecting for that to be a switch. And for now there to be a new Caesar who is a Jewish Caesar. But they expect it to happen the same way that all kings and Caesars become kings and Caesars. And that's by killing their enemies. That Jesus is going to do what, Jesus is going to do what the bad guys do, but he's going to do it as a good guy. And that's their thinking. But instead, Jesus says, now, we're going to, why do they go to Jerusalem? Because that's where the Jewish kings are crowned. That's where the Jewish king reigns from. The new capital of this new empire that's going to conquer the world is going to be in Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to be the king. They're going to Jerusalem so Jesus can be king. But he says, we're going to Jerusalem and I am going to suffer many things and be killed. And then on the third day be raised. They can't handle that. They, their mind can't process that. They, they. And so here's what happens. Verse 22. And Peter 
took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are set in your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Who do people say I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Who do you say I am? You're the Messiah. You're the king. Blessed are you. My father's revealed that to you. I'm going to build my church. Gates of hell won't prevail. Now, we're going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to suffer many things and be killed and be raised on the third day. Uh, Jesus, come here. Come over here, Jesus. Come here. Come over here, Jesus. Uh, I rebuke you, Jesus. God forbid. This must never happen to you. Stop talking that way. We didn't sign up for you to get killed. We signed up for you to become king. So I don't know where all this negative vibe's coming from. But stop it, Jesus. This must never happen to you. Now, Jesus has just told Peter that he's a rock. And he's going to have a key role in establishing the church. But Jesus immediately says, oh yeah, well, get behind me, Satan. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. From being, you know, the rock that he's going to build the church onto, Satan. That's a hard rebuke. Well... To fear death and turn away from the cross is the very thing that would keep Satan's kingdom in power. And Jesus said, you're a stumbling block to me. I can't build on that. If you're going to still hold on to the fear of death, I can't build on that. Now get behind me. Quit being an adversary. Line up and follow me. The story that we are retelling and reliving during Lent really begins here. Because until this point, Jesus is announcing the kingdom. He's healing the sick. He's feeding the multitudes. He's doing miracles. Everybody's like excited about that. But now he announces that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. So I want want to read from the first meditation. We begin our Lenten journey with Jesus by hearing him tell us that he's not headed to greatness as the world esteems greatness, but to the cross and to death. See, they're following Jesus because they believe he's he's headed towards greatness. And that's true, but not in the way they think. Peter and the rest of the disciples understand that Jesus is on his way to the capital city of Jerusalem to lay claim to the throne, become king of the Jews. And that's true. But without any ambiguity, Jesus tells his disciples that he will suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests, and finally be killed. Yes, Jesus also says that his apparent defeat will be turned to victory when he is raised on the third day. But his disciples probably hear this as an idiom referring to the resurrection of the righteous at some point in the future. As when Hosea says, after two days, he will revive us on the third day, he will raise us up. 
So they probably hear Jesus saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, and then at the end of the age when God raises the dead, I'll be part of that. That Jesus could become king of the Jews through suffering and death is inconceivable for Peter. That's why Peter says this must never happen to you. How can you become king? How can you rescue us? How can you save us if you die? This must never happen to you. For Peter, a Messiah who is killed is a Messiah who fails, and Peter didn't sign up for failure. Jesus alone seems to understand that a breakthrough into new life is only attained through the experience of loss. Martin Luther was right. Christianity is not a theology of glory, but a theology of the cross. But to choose the way of the cross over the way of glory is a hard lesson to learn. When Martin Luther says that Christianity is not a theology of glory, what he means is Christianity is not a theology of triumphalism. It's not a theology of Caesar. It's not an imperial theology. It's not becoming great in the way of the world. It's something altogether different. Like Peter... We also may be inclined to argue with Jesus when he tells us to choose the way of the cross. Surely not, Jesus. I don't want to suffer and lose. I want to be great and win. But Jesus calls that kind of thinking satanic. As the book of Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. It's going to keep you, it's going to keep you locked up in the panic room of the fear of death. If you say, I, I can't ever lose, I can't ever lose, I can't bear to have, suffer any loss, that keeps you at the shrine of pan. That keeps you locked in the panic room. Always afraid of loss. Most of us are scripted to think that life is a game and the purpose of life is to win. This is what seems right. But the divine truth is that life is a gift and the purpose of life is to learn to love well. And so Jesus invites us to follow him, not in a march to greatness, but in the cross-carrying way of self-denial. This and this alone is the way of true discipleship. Let's read that part right there, beginning in verse 24, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross And follow me. So the cross isn't just something Jesus does for us. It is also a pattern that we are to follow. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Or what will they give in return for their soul? This and this alone is the way of true discipleship. It's also the way to abundant life. Grasping for greatness is the way of the rat race. But as Walter Brueggemann says, the problem with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. (laughs) Or as Jesus put it, what do you gain if you win at all but lose your soul? During this season of Lent... Let's renew our commitment to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And then every meditation ends with a prayer. I want us to, let's pray this together. We'll put it on the screen. Pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, we are so often afraid that the way of the cross leads only to loss. A loss that we fear we cannot bear. 
Help us to believe you and to embrace the cross as the way that ultimately leads to authentic love and abundant life. Amen. During Lent, we follow Jesus from Galilee to Good Friday in Jerusalem. It is a journey to the center of salvation. Along the way, we will learn many lessons from Jesus. He'll be teaching us along the way. But the center of salvation is found at the crucifixion. That the cross is the center of salvation is something that all, a Christ, all Christians can and do agree on. But precisely how the cross is the epicenter of salvation belongs to sacred mystery. Beware of any atonement theory that can sum up the meaning of the cross in a sentence or two and have done with it. There it is. That's what it means. Okay, we're done. Beware of those. The cross is always more than can be summed up in a tidy little theory. The cross is a mystery not because, not because we have no idea what the cross means, but because we can never, never fully fathom or completely articulate the meaning of the cross. When we think we've said everything we can say about the cross, there's always more to be said. That's what, I, that's what I learned walking the Camino in 2016. The Camino de Santiago, the Holy Spirit said, go into every church you can, find the crucifix, pay attention to it, ask this question, what does this mean? And don't be too quick to give an answer. So in 2016, my Camino was a 40-day, 500-mile meditation on Christ crucified. And so after thinking about, meditating on Christ crucified for 40 days, for 500 miles, I, I understand the cross is many things. I can say things like, it's the pinnacle of God's self-disclosure. If you want to know what God is like, look at the cross. God's like that. It's divine solidarity with all human suffering. I mean, by his wounds we are healed. Does Jesus know what it is to suffer? Look at the cross. It's the shaming of the principalities and powers. The cross is the damning indictment upon the world as it is structured currently. Because the greatest of the principalities and powers do that to the Son of God. It's the point from which Satan is driven out of the world. That's what Jesus said in John 12. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. It's the death by which Jesus conquers death. It's through the crucifixion that the Son of God enters by death into death that he might trample down death and set everybody free from the fear of death, from the panic room of the devil. It's the abolition of war and violence. It's the supreme demonstration of the love of God. It's the refounding of the world around an axis of love. It's the enduring model of co-suffering love that we are called to follow. It's the eternal moment in which the sin of the world is gathered up as one and forgiven in mass. I can say much about the cross. But after I've said everything I can say about the cross, there's so much more to be said. That's why it's a mystery. And that's why I caution you to stay away from what we call atonement theories that can sum up the meaning of the cross in a sentence or two. It can't be done. If you think you can do that, you are cheapening the meaning of the cross. It's this vast, eternal mystery that we always are seeking to understand. The most prominent understanding of the cross among the early Christians 
It may surprise you. This was the dominant under... uh, This is how the earliest Christians understood the cross. They saw it as a ransom paid to Satan by which uh, Satan as the keeper of death. By which Satan and death were ultimately deceived and then destroyed. That's how, that may seem strange to you, but that's, that's the original, the first understanding. I mean, as we get into, let's think, the second century. That's how they thought about the cross. There, there, I think there's something going on there. We can see, if you really want, it's called Christus Victor, is the name of that theory. Don't just land on one theory, but that's one understanding of the cross. If you really want to understand it, read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember when the, the witch lays claim to Edmund and is going to put him to death, but Aslan takes his place and dies on the stone table. But if you know the story, there was a deeper magic at work, the story says, and the stone table itself was broken. That's a very ancient understanding. But that's only one way of approaching the cross. So... I guess what I would really say is I'm not so much interested in you being able to explain the meaning of the cross as I am you being just staying on the journey with Jesus to the cross. Just keep going with Jesus to the cross and the meanings over time will be revealed to you as you need to see them. It's a journey to the center of salvation. If you'll stay with Jesus on that journey to the cross, carrying your own cross and going with Jesus... As you come to the cross, you will see the salvation of the world and you will find your own salvation. So take up your own cross and go on this journey with Jesus. And there you will see the salvation of the world and find your own salvation. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. And now we reach the high point of our gathering on Sunday mornings. When we come to the table of the Lord, we come here and we bring our, we bring our presents, we bring our gifts, we bring our offerings, we bring our praise, we bring our worship. But the high moment of our gathering is when we come to the table and receive the gift that Christ gives us. He gives us participation in his body and in his blood. This is another sacred mystery. The Apostle Paul says the cup of blessing which we bless is our participation in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is our participation in the body of Christ. So Jesus is giving you, through bread and wine, a sharing of his flesh and blood, which is eternal life. This is what will save you from living in the panic room. All fear is ultimately related to the fear of death. And that's what Jesus comes to liberate us from, to set us free from that. Amen? So, let's confess our Christian faith and come together to the table of the Lord. I believe in God.